Hello, everyone. Welcome back to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department, the podcast hosted by the anthropology students at The Ohio State University. And I'm so happy to have you back today. Today, we have something really special for you guys. Two faculty of our department here, uh, Dr. Lexine Trask and Dr. Barbara Pebrada, talking to us today about how we kind of manage motherhood and go through the stage of raising children. So if you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves, I'll let you take it away. Hi, I'm Lexine Trask. I am an anthropologist. I received my PhD from The Ohio State University in 2009. I primarily research poverty among single mothers living in Prince George's County, Maryland. I was interested in understanding how single moms, particularly African-American single moms, try and get out of welfare, try and get out of poverty, in a post-welfare reform state. For a good portion of my childhood, my mother was a single mom. I know the struggle it was for her, especially looking back at it as an adult, of getting our family out of poverty. Uh, I was particularly fascinated by the political miasma of welfare discourse and all of the kind of policy pundits talking about how easy it was to move out of poverty. And I thought that I would like to talk to women and hear what they had to say about what barriers they faced, how difficult or easy it was to move their families out of poverty. And I'm Barbara Piperata. I'm a faculty member in the anthropology department here at The Ohio State University. And I would say that the overarching theme that sort of defines the research that I've been doing since getting my doctorate from the University of Colorado is trying to understand how women manage motherhood. And I've done that in a variety of ways. Um, I did my initial research in the Brazilian Amazon, trying to understand how women accommodate the additional energy demands that lactation places on their bodies within that particular um, biosocial context. And um, that work sort of evolved into work on food security as the Brazilian government um, initiated some important policy alleviation uh, programs that I'm hoping we'll get to talk about during this podcast. And then I've done research um, on how mothers manage poverty in more urban contexts and its relationship with food security and being able to put food on the table for their children and sort of managing then in that regard the sort of biological and social expectations that mothers have and how they do this in a context that introduces structural barriers that impede their ability to uh, fulfill their biosocial roles and the ways in which that they, they manage that process. And I became interested in this because I am kind of have a, an agenda in the sense that a lot of the research on mothers is focused on their children and they become somewhat invisible. And so all of my work has really had moms at the forefront um, trying to understand their experiences, their strategies, and the implications they have for both themselves in terms of their health and well-being and that of their children. So one of the things that you mentioned, uh, Barbara, is that you feel that mothers are invisible in this research about childhood poverty, poverty amongst mothers. In what way do you see mothers being invisible? Well, I think a lot of the research on poverty has focused on its impacts on children because they're very vulnerable members of society. They're reliant on adults for their care. They have particularly high nutritional and specialized nutritional needs. They're they're, they're in that period of growth and development. 
a vulnerable stage that needs to be managed. And the people who manage that are mothers. But the focus, whether you're looking at public health policy or you're looking at even dialogue within anthropology, is often on the impacts for children. Mm -hmm. And the mom is just, in many cases, I think, assumed to be the provider of that. Mm -hmm. And we focus on the outcomes for children. But we don't often look at them as that dyad where we're trying to understand the mother and her experience mm -hmm. to fulfill her role mm -hmm. um, and the toll that that takes on her or the resilience that she shows despite so many of the structures that impede her ability to mm -hmm. fulfill her role in different societies. So I really wanted to focus on moms and documenting that experience mm -hmm. because I just thought it would add, you know, a, it would fill a gap that we sort of had in our dialogue. No, that's interesting because the reason I ask is because in U.S.-based poverty research, I think we see the flip where mothers are focused on, but the issue becomes, what have they done wrong? What have they not done enough of? And we, I think, to some degree, fail to look at the outcomes with children, right? Where it's not as much. The emphasis on poverty research, at least U.S.-based poverty research, has been what are moms not doing enough of? What poor strategies are they using? What deficits are they coming into motherhood with? How are these poor strategies and decision-making responsible for the poverty that they experience? And then you hear the, seclo, the sequela of the consequences of childhood poverty, right? The, the poor nutrition, um, poor caregiving, that kind of thing. Um, so I just, I thought that was an interesting reading some of your research that it's kind of flipped here. Well, okay, so what I would say to that is, yes, I see, I mean, I see what you're mm -hmm. saying, but I would also say that, again, in that context, mm -hmm. the mother is just being viewed as where she's failed. Right. It's not really right. trying to understand her experience right. or the ways or the strategies that she's using right. to overcome it. No. It's really focused more on she is failing to manage motherhood. Right. She is failing to fulfill her biosocial role, right. and there are implications for her children. Right. So, again, the focus is on what happens to the children, right. and she is in the equation in terms of whether or not she fulfilled her biosocial role. Right. Um, and society defines those sorts of things. Um, and I was interested in understanding how women in different ecological and social contexts mm -hmm. were managing it. So mm -hmm. I totally see you know, yeah. what you're saying, because yeah. I, you know, I've read a lot of that poverty literature mm -hmm. in the United States, and women are often blamed. And in fact, I think the way we've looked at mothers is as a group that needs to be surveilled, yeah. right? A group that, needs to, that, that the state needs to surveil, because they have the responsibility for children, and we somehow think that they are incapable under certain circumstances, mm -hmm. certain types of mothers, um, mm -hmm. of fulfilling that responsibility. Well, and what I find troubling is that not only do they need to be surveilled, they need to be regulated, right? And that you need to abide by certain strictures, certain regulations, in order to receive any kind of financial or in-kind assistance. And what I found very interesting, at least in my research, is that the policies and the programs that are put in place actually make it harder for women to provide for their children. And then in turn, they're still blamed because they're not fulfilling those social roles that we define for them culturally. So that is, you know, something that came into my research a little bit later. So when I started my work in the Brazilian Amazon, I was really, I mean, I came into it with a very ecological sort of mindset. 
Um, and so I was really interested in, okay, in this tropical ecology that's a pretty tough place to make a living, it's, you know, it's not an easy environment to live in, how is it that women are accommodating this amazingly high demand that lactation places on their bodies? So they need an, an extra, say, 500 kilocalories a day. How are they managing that? And I want to understand that in this biocultural uh, sort of context. And so I you know, collected all these data on their dietary intake and their energy expenditure and their body fat, and I tracked them over time to see how, what strategies they used. So it really was kind of through the lens of an ecological perspective. And as I did that work, um, and I, I understood how women were managing that process there and the importance of sort of social support in that context, for example, in the postpartum period, many of these women were completely allowed to not go back to the fields and work in their manioc gardens. Other women and even men stepped up and did that task, and women were able to step away and focus on breastfeeding and taking care of their newborn infant. And then as time went on, they slowly kind of went back to that sort of traditional role that they, or that, that, that role that they had prior. To, to giving birth um, and working in the fields and, and taking their child with them when they could or having other people help take care of that child when they weren't doing that. And that was a longitudinal project and I would go back. And so after I finished my dissertation work, I went back. And when I went back, I started noticing all these changes going on and what was driving that change was a poverty alleviation program. And, and it's currently the world's largest um, conditional cash transfer program. So conditional cash transfer programs are poverty programs as I'm, you know, similar to welfare and similar to your experience that mm -hmm. you've had where um, cash is given, whether it's in the form on a credit card like it mm -hmm. is in the United States, and actually in Brazil they eventually move towards actually have a card that you go into town and you put in a machine and money comes out. Um, but you have to fulfill certain conditionalities in order to continue to get it. Yep. And the conditionalities in the Amazon, now I'm working in a very rural place, it's like eight hours from the closest town, the conditionalities in that context were that the children go to school, mm -hmm. um, that the they're vaccinated, um, and that they and the, and then the moms are given money, and that money is supposed to solve their food security and or food insecurity and their mm -hmm. poverty problems, right? Um, so what it actually did was it shifted this huge kind of burden in a sense on moms. So the, the cash was welcome. These are people mm -hmm. who are living on very low income. Cash is certainly welcome. They have to travel eight hours to get it. Um, they have to bring their kids for uh, nutritional and, and health surveillance in the city, which requires, again, an eight-hour trip by boat to get there. Um, and then they need to make sure that those kids stay um, in school and are, have you know, good school attendance back in the rural communities where they're living. And the moms were pretty stressed out by this responsibility, yeah. mainly because children play a key role in agriculture there. And so their children were unable to then accompany them to the fields. They had to stay back in school. And as they got older and moved into, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, these are key years when they're making huge contributions, either watching younger siblings or going to the fields with their parents to help. Um, they had to be in school, and so they were removed from that subsistence economy. And people started abandoning a subsistence economy because they couldn't really maintain it. Um, the program started creating variation between households, hmm. so people became resentful of who was getting money and how right. much because you got some of it was based on how many children you had. Um, so it started to break down sort of some of the social relationships that were key to um, as fallback strategies right. in a rural context where you have to get you know where you go out and get your own food every day. So I thought that was um, interesting to watch a poverty program, and I think you've had these experiences, so I'll be interested yeah. in how the women that you work with manage this, but for me it was interesting to watch how sort of tone deaf this policy was for the rural poor in Brazil, because mm -hmm. they did not live in a context where children would naturally be going to school during the hours that are set by the state, mm -hmm. um, and now the parents are being surveilled, and it's mainly the mother, because the money is given only to mothers. In oh. fact, that is a stipulation, that mothers get the money. 
Um, so for me, it was very interesting to watch how the program itself put some constraints on their ability to fulfill a key goal of the program, which is to break the cycle of food insecurity, yeah. build human capital and children, so that they could break the intergenerational cycle of poverty. No, there, there's very much the same kind of issue with the women that I work with, um, but in a little bit of a different context. So I primarily work with women who are homeless. And there are a number of organizations in the county I work in that you, if you can get access to the homeless shelter, there's one homeless shelter in the county that serves single mothers and their children. Um, and this is a county that's roughly a million people. So it's a quite large facility, but it only has 100 beds. And some of those, about 25 of those, those beds are for just single women. So 75 for single moms and their children. And usually the stay is about 90 days. And during the course of that program, right, you are supposed to be getting a job if you don't have one, um, and trying to make arrangements for some type of housing after you leave the shelter. The shelter, if you will, is a pipeline to transitional housing programs. Uh, transitional housing programs, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not, are programs that are either charitable organizations or they're government-run organizations where they put you in an apartment for anywhere from six to two, six months to two years. And depending on the program, you pay a portion of the rent, a portion of the utilities. Some of the charitable organizations take care of all of those payments for their clients. But getting into those programs often means that you have to go through the homeless shelter first. And then during the course of your stay at the, the homeless shelter, there's an interview process. And they're trying to find eligible candidates uh, for those transitional housing programs. And I was working with a woman who at the time had a nine-month-old son. And she was, she'd been in the housing, the homeless shelter for about almost three months. So she was getting near her limit. Uh, she had already made arrangements to go back to school. So she was going to go into university and she was gonna start working on a nursing degree. She had been in contact with her mom and her mom said that while she was in school, she would help take care of her grandson so that her daughter wasn't having to put this huge outlay into childcare. So she goes to this meeting to see if she's an eligible candidate for the transition housing program. And they start asking her questions about is, what are her plans for the next two years. And so she lays it out that she is going to go back to school and she is going to try and get this nursing degree that will help propel her and her son out of poverty. And then during the interview process, they start asking questions, well, are you gonna work? And she explained that you know she was going to go to school full time. She wasn't going to have the the time and to 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 work as well as go to school and fulfill this role as a mom. And then somebody on the committee asked, "Well, who's going to be taking care of your child while you are in school?" And she explained that her grand her mother, the child's grandmother, was going to be taking care of her son. And then the response back was, well, why don't you just move in with your mother 
if she's going to be taking care of your son while you're in school. And so this kind of dismissive idea of, okay, if you're getting help in this form or fashion, why do you need help in this housing? Why do you need help with this? If you want to be part of this transitional housing program, then you do need to work. You can't just spend all of your time going back to school. So it's these weird requirements, not weird, maybe that's not the right word, but a lot of requirements that aren't necessarily um, helping women get out of the cycle of poverty. So yeah, I see it in the same, maybe in different ways, Mm -hmm. but in the same general sense that you do. So I think, you know, this is a place where anthropology can make a big impact. And I think we haven't done a lot, which is we're not often at the table when policies are formulated. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the kinds of research we do, the sort of embedded, in-depth sort of research that we do, where we spend large amounts of time in places we understand and we document people's lived experiences, um, can inform it in very important ways how some of those what seem obvious or seem to make sense Mm -hmm. or seem to be culturally appropriate kinds of questions and concerns are really not or they don't really apply to the population that these programs often target. So one of the interesting things for me in changing field sites and or at least having two different field sites, one in a very rural subsistence based economy and the other one in an urban and peri-urban households that are definitely embedded in the larger national economy and so access to resources was through wage labor, whereas in the other place, their access to food, a, you know, a key component when we talk about poverty and f- food, food insecurity, um, coming from one's own labor, right? So in those two different contexts, you know, mothers had very different responsibilities. You know, in the Amazon, their responsibilities were food producer, food gatherer, uh, food processor, child provisioning, right? They had all those responsibilities, and then here comes poverty alleviation program, and now you're nurse, and take it, well, I guess they were always nurses as well, um, but now you know you need to transport your child to the city to make sure that they're being measured and vaccinated and that everything looks good, which are good things, but it's another burden on moms, right? Um, and oh, you have to use the small amount of money we're now giving you for this poverty alleviation program to pay for the gas for the boat that's gonna take you the eight hours so you can take the, your child somewhere so they can be put on a scale that usually works but not always works. Um, so we can make sure that they're you know being fed and that they're healthy. Um, we can measure them, take their stature, uh, and vaccinate them. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, you're going to need to show us that your kid's been attending school. And so moms in that context were having to relearn, you know, new responsibilities. They were taking on additional responsibilities. But no, but, you know, none of those previous responsibilities disappeared. And then in, in Nicaragua, it's just so different because so many of the women there, I think, overlap more with the kinds of women that you work with in the United States where their access to resources and food being, a, you know, the key resource here we're talking about, um, food insecurity, and well, poverty and food insecurity, um, is through their wage labor. In a place where there are very few protections um, for workers, uh, wages are extraordinarily low, um, minimum wages are not observed in many cases. A lot of times people are part, and especially women, are part of the informal economy, and so they are very vulnerable to mass fluctuations in income. Uh, they can be dismissed from their job with very little recourse. Um, so there's so little protection in place, so they're extraordinarily vulnerable. But despite being structurally vulnerable because of the way in which the system is set, set up, it, their responsibilities don't change. So they're still expected right. to be able to secure these basic resources, provide a home that meets the cultural standards um, for Nicaragua, which is a clean home, a well-organized home. They talked about this, about women who live in houses that look like zoos. 
-hmm. So houses where things were strewn about on the floor, where children have played, where beds are unmade, where floors are not swept, where animals are coming in and out. Um, so they have to maintain that, but they also have to go to work to secure resources. They have to figure out who's going to take care of their children. Right. They have to come home and cook, usually 80-something percent of them cooking still with wood, even though they're living in an urban environment, trying to cook beans with wood on a wood-burning you know, fire. Yeah. That takes hours and yeah. hours every day. So they have to get up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning to make sure that those, those basic foods are made during the day because now they're going to disappear and go to work and somebody's going to provision their kids. Mm -hmm. Coming home and making sure that their children have done their schoolwork. Um, if they're attending school. So watching them manage that, and I guess what was inspiring for me in many ways is despite all of this, they were resilient enough to make it work most of the time. Mm -hmm. But I guess this, you know, an outcome of that has been the toll it's taken in many cases on their mental well-being. And I'm yeah. sure you've run into a lot in terms of women's mental health and fulfilling their role. Yeah, it's, it is very similar. I see the same kinds of things. It's a little bit different. Um, in the sense of kind of the time allotted, especially when it comes to cooking. They don't have the same issues there, but the kid gets sick at daycare and has a temperature. They are working in minimum wage jobs that generally don't allow them to have paid leave, let alone unscheduled time off. So many days you miss work, um, unexcused work, uh, you get fired. And that becomes problematic when you are the only provider, economic provider in the family, that is challenging when you are the only caregiver in the family. And so what I saw women doing many times, both in the homeless shelter and in the transitional housing programs that I worked with, they would form these alliances with other women who were single moms, and they would kind of trade off and kind of helping each other make ends meet either financially or when it came to childcare assistance. Um, in the homeless shelter that I worked in, they had a childcare center that you could sign up for the day before if you knew you had an appointment, um, but it was never open. And so what I saw were some single mothers, some of the single women who were living in the shelter basically become nannies uh, to women who had children that needed care but didn't have care. The mental health toll is incredible. Uh, they are juggling so many balls of low-wage labor um, and pulling anywhere from 40 to 60 hours a week, right? Because the more you work, the more money that comes into the household, the more things that you can provide for your children. But then where I saw the kind of toll, the mental health toll, well, some of these women are coming from battered situations. Mm -hmm. Some of them have experienced a lot of trauma, physical violent trauma in their life. And what I often refer to as the mommy guilt of how did I end up here? Look what it, they have these feelings of inadequacy and insecurity of how could I put my children through this? What am I doing to my child? We're living in the homeless shelter, right? Um, and the mental health toll there is incredible, that just sense of guilt and then not being able to be there for their child of, hey, school's just called and said my kid is sick, but I can't be there to pick them up because I have another three hours on my shift that I have to take care of. Otherwise, I'm going to get fired. 
and having to tell your sick kid that no you got to tough it out and then when you do go to pick them up you get this side eye from some well-meaning administrative person at the school going well why weren't you here to pick up your kid right and then the danger of cps this constant stress of not doing enough not being there enough not providing enough it's very damaging and it fuels i think a lack of confidence it's while it's this constant stress of i have to do more i have to do more but i'm so burdened already and it and, it, and for some women it can be a break it, it, it can literally break them emotionally as well as physically so you know in 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 nicaragua i think you see a lot of similarities with that mm-hmm. um you know women are very clear socially you know a woman in in nicaragua I- even if she has a job her primary role is often still culturally constructed through this idea of ama de casa mm-hmm. which is you know i am the 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 housewife mm-hmm. but that means more than that there mm-hmm. right and so i need to maintain this place to i need to maintain my household my children my family and in many cases i'm working with women who do have a partner and there is a man around. I mean, not in all cases. I mean, there's right. a high uh, burden of single, mo- there's a lot of single motherhood throughout Latin America. Um, but even in the context where I'm working in households where men are there, you know, gender division of labor and social roles about who does what in the household and who takes responsibility. And that's not to say no men are ever taking care of their children or participating. I mean, many of them are also working very low paid, jo- you know, getting paid very low wages in their jobs and trying to contribute to the household and make ends meet but they don't have attached to them this responsibility for maintaining the household that seems to be a particular social role of women. Um, and so at least for them, if, if they can fulfill their social role and feel achievement, mm-hmm. if they have a job and they're bringing those wages back into the household, she needs to manage those wages. Right. She's the one that needs to be able to say, okay, I've got X number of dollars until the next paycheck. I've got to make this work. Right. to make sure that my kids get their lunch at school, to make sure that I buy the foods that we're going to eat every day, that I meet my social standards for our society about mm-hmm. what we should be eating. Mm-hmm. Um, as children are seeing advertisements and going grocery shopping with their mm-hmm. mothers and wanting things, mm-hmm. I mean, asking for things and, be, and not being able to purchase them. Um, you know, a key thing that they talked about a lot are their you know, cultural ideals regarding what a meal should look like and what healthy mm-hmm. food looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have very clear ideas. You know, a lunch meal should have some form of meat on the plate. It could be chicken, it could be ideally beef would be, you know, their, you know, their idealized meat, but it could be something else. But in many cases, they can't reach that goal. And we would ask mothers, you know, okay, so how often then do you eat meat if that's mm-hmm. such a cultural idea that you're supposed to provide for your children? You see that as healthy, you see that as culturally appropriate. And they would say, ha, you know, maybe twice a month or maybe once a month. Or, you know, one woman might say once a week and the others in the focus group would turn around and say, oh, you're lucky because if, I, if we see meat once or twice a month, we're, you know, that's doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have that, I, that same sort of experience that you're talking about where they're not meeting that social mm-hmm. obligation and they're not, and they worry about the biological implications for their children. Are they then not mm-hmm. getting a healthy diet if I'm not able to provide mm-hmm. these specific things on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. So that took a major toll on them. And one of the things that came out in the most recent research uh, that, so I'm working with uh, colleagues at the university, the National University, um, Autonomous University of Nicaragua in Leon on this project. And we published this paper in, in, at the end of last year on uh, looking at the relationship between food insecurity and mom's maternal, uh, mental health. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the really interesting things by combining all this quantitative data on you know, mom's mental health, which we measured in a variety of ways, and then the interviews, the focus groups in interviews, was that you know, we thought women might have social support. Some of this social support might help them alleviate this problem. And in fact, what we found is, sure, they do have some social support. Some of them reported having enormous social networks and having tons of social support through those networks. But when it came to food insecurity, that was something that you didn't talk about. Huh. That was sort of off the table. And that's because it was so associated with a failure of that maternal role is to provide. And that's so part of the identity. And they're adopting, as it sounds like the women mm -hmm. here, and that doesn't surprise me, adopt, is a very neoliberal rhetoric about yeah. this being a personal responsibility, mm -hmm. despite the fact that um, it's structures in society that impede their ability to fulfill that role. Mm -hmm. So even though they know I can't get a job and that there's not a lot of work in Nicaragua or I can't get a job because there's not a lot of work in Baltimore for someone with my skill set, right. right? But at the same time, they still internalize that as a personal failure. And right. I think that that takes a huge toll on women mm -hmm. um, and I'm, you know, in both places. So. so one of the really interesting things that I didn't expect to come out of my research based on all of kind of what I had prepped for going into the field is that when we've looked at poverty research in the U.S. for the last 20 or 30 years, the literature says African-American single moms, they have these huge support networks of kin to help them get by. And when it's not kin, it's the African-American church. And so I went into my research expecting to see these extended networks of familial and social support and didn't see it. That the networks of support that I saw were these networks of support that women were forced because the programs were really not meeting their needs. Um, either financially or in kind, that they were forming these alliances with women in the programs that they were already part of. And that's how they were able to provide the care, provide the assistance, provide income, provide food for themselves, for their children. Um, and in some cases, when they got out of the homeless shelter or when they got out of transitional housing programs, they were doubling up with other women that they had gotten to know because they didn't have family who were supporting them. They didn't have necessarily friends outside of their social circle that were supporting them. So I think that that sort of opens up sort of this newer research that's been going on. I don't want to say it's, you know, just yesterday, but there's this sort of movement now of saying, you know, we as anthropologists have been so good at documenting suffering, right? And yet, when we look at, when we, when we really dig in and we embed and we see these new patterns of resilience and people figuring things out, that there's hope in that and that we should document better these sort of hopeful situations. We shouldn't always, you know, focus on the bad side and that we should, it kind of opens up whole new areas of research for us is to figure out how people do make it work. And I think that that's a really important thing. I mean, I, I can imagine you going in and, and sort of doing a follow-up study, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. um, with that sort of framework of hope and how do women find solutions right. under in, in very dire sort of situations. And I think the same thing that can be said about whether I look at how households in the Brazilian Amazon are now sort of restructuring the way they relate to one another and how they accommodate new demands of children going to school versus helping parents in the manioc fields. Um, how are they restructuring that 
in this new era of poverty alleviation in the Bolsa Familia, this huge poverty alleviation program, right? Um, what kind of resilient activities are they doing? How are they responding? Um, there's a lot that could be done there that we often don't do because it's sort of a lens we haven't looked through as often. But I think that a lot can be done with that. But I, as much as you know, you want to document those things right. because they're 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 positive things and they're empowering things for women to see success and to see those solutions they're they're coming up with as successes. I really don't want us to ever send the message that um, this should be all that is there, right? right. That that we as a society don't, we, we should recognize that as a species, we have never as women mothered alone. I mean, we've always done this as part of groups likely, right? right. And so to expect women, regardless of whether it's rural Brazil, urban poverty Nicaragua, homelessness and poverty in the United States, that this has always been sort of a group effort. You know, right. they say it takes a child, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? And we've always kind of done it that way. And I think that women should be empowered by knowing that they shouldn't be expected to have to do it alone. Agreed. Well, thank you both so much for speaking to us today. I always learn a lot um, when I do these episodes, but I know that this one will really stick with me. Um, and so I really appreciate all the work that you guys do. And so to all our listeners out there, I hope that you enjoyed our episode today and that you um, will come back for more with our next content episode. But in the meantime, you can follow us at A Story of Us OSU on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu. And as always, this podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at the Department of Anthropology at The Ohio State University and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time at A Story of Us, Our Humanity, History, and Department. Oh,